This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm Michael Sears at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. We have a guest host, Dr. Sean Baker. My colleague at the Stockdale Center is talking with Senior Fellow Alvin Townley, also at the Stockdale Center. This is a series of podcasts around Homecoming 50. Sean and Alvin begin a series to talk about that homecoming, the trials and tribulations of the POWs, and their wives and family at home. And now, here's Sean. Welcome to the fourth installment of a series of uh, discussions and interviews. I'm very happy to have held with uh, Mr. Alvin Townley, the author of the book Defiant, The POWs Who Endured Vietnam's Most Infamous Prison, The Women Who Fought for Them, and The One Who Never Returned. Uh, In previous installments, we have been talking about uh, the code of conduct, the war effort, both on the Uh, Vietnamese side and the uh, U.S. government side and the POW's response to these. And it's so it's been kind of a almost from a 30,000 foot perspective looking at the history. But one of the, I think, strengths of the book and what makes it such a compelling read is that you get a good look into, as it were, the souls and personalities of the people involved, not only the POWs, but their wives. And we really started to get a good taste of that in the last installment when uh, the subject of uh, Mr. George Coker was brought up by Alvin. Uh, uh, Alvin and George have a pretty close personal relationship that has uh, evolved over the years since he's written the book. So I'd like to use that as kind of a dive in to a very, as it were, personal podcast this time, allowing Alvin uh, to uh, give us uh, the privilege of a look into uh, his interactions with these guys, his friendships with these uh, men and and the wives as well, those that are still with us at any rate. So uh, if you don't mind, Alvin, uh, please feel free to do do what you do best, weave a story and uh, uh, tell us about how it is um, you met George Coker and uh, your impressions of him and uh, what you guys do when he visits or you visit him. Well, you know, Sean, um, you mentioned the warm relationship we have, and we do have a very warm, uh, close relationship now. We didn't at first. Uh, George, George was very cagey uh, when I first uh, first uncovered him and approached him about telling a story or, or hearing a story. Uh, he was not – he didn't know who I was. He didn't know me from Adam and uh, was, was very uh, – elusive, but eventually uh, I got to him. I got to him because we were both Eagle Scouts. And so that, that ended up being the, uh, the key that opened the door to him, so to speak. And uh, when we met for the first time, he never mentioned anything about the Alcatraz gang, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and which really was the basis for the book Defiant. But he certainly told me about his experiences as a POW. And you know, we were sitting there in his house in Virginia Beach, and he was smoking his cigar, as he still does, and um, you know, just telling me all these, uh, all these stories, including the story of his escape, um, the story of him holding his hands up for you know, 12 hours a day above his head for you know, two and a half months because he refused to sign any confession. And just the stories of him being a general malcontent and troublemaker in uh, the North Vietnamese prison system. And I always say that if North Vietnamese could take back one surface to air missile, they would take back the one that shot down George Coker. 
because he <laughs> was a pistol. He was a state wrestling champion from New Jersey, and he was five. He still is five feet six inches of just uh, of grit. And when it's called upon, you know, some some real toughness. So I think he was a tough character for the North Vietnamese to deal with, and um, you know that uh, him him bring, him being the first person to uh, meet with me about this, um, I, he introduced me to the other guys in the Alcatraz 11 and really the Alcatraz 11 came up in the second conversation that we had. Uh, it was when I was writing my book fly Navy and, uh, he mentioned something about the Alcatraz gang. And I said, wait, wait, what's that? He said, I've never told you. And I said, no, sir. So he proceeds to tell me about the, uh, 11 POWs that were yanked out of the Hanoi Hilton because they were so obnoxious and so subversive and put in a special prison they nicknamed Alcatraz because they really were very isolated in solitary cells, isolated from one another and also isolated from the rest of the prison uh, prison population for nearly two years. And um, he told me that story, which was uh, incredible, and I'd never heard of it. And then uh, he told me the other side of the story, which was the story of the POW MIA wives because the the wives of the Alcatraz gang um, in particular – uh, Louise Mulligan and uh, Jane Denton and Sybil Stockdale were very active in really starting the POW MIA movement back home. You know, the, we all see the black and white flag today. We still see people wearing this, those nickel wrist, wrist bracelets with people's names on them. And all of that is, um, you know, uh, stems from the founding of the National League of POW MIA Families, which was uh, done by the Alcatraz 11 or Alcatraz gang's uh, wives. So it was this great story that he had um, brought to my attention. And uh, I came back to him sometime later and said, Hey, I, I think we should really tell this story more than just as a you know, couple pages in, um, in Fly Navy. I think this really should be a, a story that America knows. And so that became defiant. And George, you know, kind of one by one introduced me to the other members of the Alcatraz uh, gang. And, you know, we've just, we've stayed friends and sadly, you know, we, we've seen each other at several funerals. And I think both of us are a little sad because, you know, we'll probably be at, you know, the funerals for a lot of those, um, a lot of those men and have been already uh, and their, and their mm-hmm. wives. Um, most recently um, Bob Shoemaker's wife in January of 2022. So, you know, that just started a friendship and I remember being him there with him and Pam and uh, at Arlington cemetery and, uh, a freezing February when we laid George McKnight to rest and uh, the time we spent together after that. And then um, I guess a couple of years ago, they began stopping at our house on their way to their home in the Florida Keys uh, every season. So George Coker and his wife, Pam are now a grandpa and miss Pam to our two kids. And, you know, I've seen George just played on the couch with the two kids for a solid hour. So our, our kids love grandpa and, you know, we've really had a great relationship Um just on a friend, on a friend level. I mean, they're kind of like our extra, our extra grandparents. And so we love having them around and uh, it's been been very special for me, I think. And for uh, Suzanne, I think for our, uh, our kids too. That's great. Um, Your, your description of him as at first being cagey. uh, It's uh, I think very, uh, very interesting uh, because I've only met him once uh, at a, dinner that the superintendent held uh, back uh, last fall. And he he was somewhat cagey, but he was also kind of a, I don't know how to put it, a raconteur. He was telling a great, he, he told the story of the escape, for instance, and it was just great listening to him uh, tell that story. 
And uh, your your account of North Vietnamese's attitude toward him reminded me. I think it was I think it was Paul Galanti that that only half jokingly said George Coker's probably the reason that they let us go home. They were sick and tired of dealing with him. So you know, that's funny. It's, it's a great story. Um, I, I know you've you've also met uh, uh, the wives. You met you, you mentioned Lorraine and her Jane Denton, and obviously I don't think you met Sybil, but can you tell me a little bit about uh, the wives you've met and what they told you about the experiences and and just in terms of their personalities, uh, how do they come across? Well, you know, I think uh, Louise Mulligan and Lorraine Shoemaker are the two that um, that we knew, knew best. Or, you know, Louise is, is still with us. Um, her husband, Jim, passed away uh, this summer. And, and Louise was always just as tough in her in her eighties when I got to know her as I think she was back in her thirties and forties. And you know, she and Jim had known each other since they were in high school together in Massachusetts in a mill town. And um, uh, she was just very tough, but but also very sharp and, and very kind. So I don't, I don't mean to say that she was tough in a negative sense, but I think as a military wife, certainly one that went through that kind of experience and had to fight so hard to get her husband home. I think she had this uh, innate toughness that was, you know, honed uh, to some degree during the Vietnam experience. And, um, you know, if, if there was a, there's a problem my family had, I would feel very comfortable if Louise Mulligan was coming in to help me solve it. You know, Lorraine was uh, wonderful. And you know, I, I've spent the night at the Shoemaker's home in uh, Northern Virginia many times. And um, she was always just a wonderful host. And, uh, very interested and, uh, and and warm. She was not as active with the other wives uh, as uh, as uh, other, some other wives were, but um, certainly always uh, loved Lorraine. And she was wonderfully kind to Kensington and Everett, and uh, we certainly miss her. Now, in the in the process of researching the book, I'm, I'm sure you did uh, a great many interviews with uh, these folks. Were there any times where it was? difficult for them to speak about the events? And if so, what what aspects were the most difficult for them? And then how did you approach that as an author, needing that information, but also, you know, wanting to respect privacy, wanting to respect uh, feelings? You know, um, I don't really recall anyone getting too emotional to talk about anything. I think they hmm. have talked about it so much and they have, um, uh, they are so far removed from it now that you know, I, I found them very, you know, fairly um, willing to talk about pretty much anything. Uh, Bob Shoemaker still won't tell me about the super secret code that he used to, to communicate back with uh, uh, naval intelligence. Yeah. But other, than, so he would get, he would get cagey about that. Um, otherwise, I thought you know they were really pretty uh, analytical and matter of fact and, and forthcoming. Uh, George McKnight would probably get the most emotional. Uh, I remember being, mm-hmm. being with him down at, um, in Hilton head and him getting emotional, you know, remembering some of the stories, but uh, you know, the other guys for the most part were um, pretty, pretty matter of fact about it. And I, I think probably knew how to tell the story. And I think they probably fell into almost a, a comfortable pattern, you know, in telling that story. And then, you know, Jim Mulligan was always the most matter of fact about it. And Jim Mulligan could remember what happened on particular days, Sean. It was really impressive. Um, and he was always my, my fact checker because uh, he just has, he had a steel trap of a memory and would always be extremely just matter of fact and analytical about things. 
So I never, yeah. I never worried about getting him upset. He just tell, tell, tell it to me the way it was. Yeah, that really comes across in his book, The Hanoi Commitment, I think. There is this one, I think I might have mentioned it uh, already, but there's this one chapter where he's telling, uh, it's called The Hunger and Thirst Ordeal, where he's telling about the uh, time, it was during the Make the Choice campaign, um, where they decided they were going to stick him in this room, this dark room, until he submitted. And he does not. And he's almost gives you this very clinical description of his slowly starting to waste away, his mind starting to go, but he has committed to not buckling under. And he ended up winning that thing. The guards become very alarmed at the fact that he seems to be fading away and not eating and not drinking because he was afraid the water was poisoned. And they eventually revive him with some tea. They take him to a meeting with a cat, as a matter of fact, and uh, he fully expects for Cat to uh, say, you know, as a condition of you're being released from this, we're gonna have we're gonna have you right. And he is surprised and tremendously relieved when that does not happen. And then it dawns on him, I won. And it's just a great description. That chapter It's literally one of the best pieces of literature to come out of these guys. I think mentioning that he won one of the. Um interesting things about uh, the way life goes is you, I, I particularly have never have any idea where, where the path is taking me. And, um, you know, when I wrote fly Navy, I, I wasn't really sure what the path was after that. However, um, you know, fly Navy, if I, if I had not written fly Navy, I don't think I would have been able to write defiant, not only because I wouldn't have discovered the story, but I think writing that book, I got probably fly Navy. That is, I got such a good view into the character and mentality of naval aviators and military aviators in general. Um, and that I think is the, uh, the key to understanding what happened in Hanoi, because you can't understand the resistance. You can't understand the perseverance. You can't understand the, um, the uh, attitude and the, and the uh, cohesion and relentlessness, unless you understand the, the mindset of, of these aviators. And these are competitive guys. And at the end of the day, they were competing with the North Vietnamese. They didn't want to lose. I mean, there, there was patriotism and there was faith and there was love, love for their families and desire to return home. But I think at the end of the day, they wanted to win and they yeah, did not want to I, lose. And I think that was a very defining characteristic of the POWs in North Vietnam. It's, it's a very, very salient observation. I, I've always had the impression reading the various accounts, the, first-hand accounts by the men that at times I, I feel like I'm, I'm reading uh, something from the point of view of similar to athletes. They just had this, you're right, this deep-seated competitive streak. Hey, you're going to try and put us in this position. You're going to try and defeat us. Well, we will not allow that to happen. Really comes through strong on the part of those men. But you know what? That also comes through strongly on, in, in, on the side of the women. One of the striking features of um, In Love and War is you get that same impression from Sybil Stockdale. She is just not going to allow the, the government to dictate uh, her behavior, especially when she sees the, the, the lack of wisdom in the keep quiet policy. And she's got that kind of that Coker-esque, if you want to put it that way, just determination to, to, to block that move, you know, uh, 
be the wrestler, be the football player, whatever you want to say, the, the lousy analogy, sports analogy coming from me. Um, but uh, boy, do you, do you get that coming across? And I would say Louise Mulligan the same way, just determined fighters. So I don't know what that says about um, uh, successful marriages, but I, I think there's a certain <laughs> resonance there in the personality types. Um, you have competitive risk-taking alpha types of both genders. And boy, when they get together, man, you have one heck of a partnership. And I think also deep love obviously formed as well. Yes. You know, the Alcatraz, uh, the 11 members of the Alcatraz 11, um, the Alcatraz gang, uh, 10 came home. One did not make it out. Ron stores, who's an air force captain and, uh, George McKnight and George Coker were both bachelors. And so they, they came home, with a heck of a story to tell someone on the first date. Yeah. And, but you know, the, the other, uh, the other um, Alcatraz gang members were all married and they all stayed married. So, you know, which is just an interesting statistic, um, you know, having gone through that kind of separation, you know, we don't talk about this as much, but there were some, you know, unhappy endings uh, when, when um, some, some people came home, but uh, the Alcatraz gang you know, stayed together and, um, you know, had reunions on a regular basis, really up until the last, last couple of years. And Suzanne and I were at a reunion at the Mulligan's house. Um, I guess it was December of December of 2018, maybe just before the, um, which is December, 2019, I'm sorry, uh, before the pandemic. And um, yeah. uh, that was the last time we saw Sam Johnson. I think he was uh, Congressman Sam Johnson was a congressman from Texas for 25 years. And um, one of the, the Alcatraz uh, gang POWs and, you know, Sam was there and George was there and um, Jim Mulligan was there and Bob Shoemaker was there. And it's really a special, special group. And unfortunately, you know, um, Bob Shoemaker and George Coker are the uh, the last two left of the Alcatraz gang, which is kind of kind of sad. It is sad. Now that you mentioned some of the others, uh, uh, Sam Johnson, can you give us a sketch of Sam Johnson? Yeah, Sam was the Texan. So, you know, if you're, if you're making this into a movie and you know, I know somebody listening to this is going to call me and ask me to um, help him make the movie, but uh, Sam Johnson is a Texan and he was um, a hard worker. I mean, he was out working on railroad lines when he was in his teens, he was shooting out street lights with a gang uh, out somewhere outside Dallas, Texas, when he was even younger than that. So I mean, he, you know, he yeah. came from an interesting background, but, but became a U uh, S air force Thunderbird lead solo pilot. And so it was an extraordinary pilot. And, uh, you know, the North Vietnamese for some reason just did not like him. They really gave him a hard time. And you know, if you read, um, his book, uh, captive warrior, or if you read defiant, uh, you know, you get a sense of really what he, what he survived. Um, he w- went through some really, uh, really tough times. Yeah. yeah he, he, and he, he, interestingly, he, his, his daughter married Jim Mulligan's son. And so they, they have correct. They refer to as the, the POW grandchildren. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah, you're, uh, I, I've just got that book myself. I'm also a Texan, uh, native of Dallas. I lived in Plano for a while, which, which is uh, where his district was, and picked up that book. And that portion of the book where he details the fact that they kept him isolated even after they had been giving some of the other Alcatraz 11 roommates. Boy, that's a powerful read. You can see he's becoming very worried about his own sanity and his own emotional health. Unfortunately, yeah, the, the, kind the, of the other, the other, um, 
the other real character was Harry Jenkins. And Harry was a um, Navy flyer. I don't know how Harry Jenkins fit in a, um, a uh, Skyhawk <laughs> because he was like six feet five, um, kind of tall and gangly. And from what I gather, his personality was a lot like Vince Vaughn's. He was, you know, yeah. he just had a great sense of humor uh, throughout the whole ordeal. Um, would always come with funny things to say or do to keep people's spirits up and, and his own too. And, um, you know, he was a, uh, a terrific guy. One of the, one of the, um, the Alcatraz gang members who passed away before I started writing the book. So I never got to meet him, although um, I certainly met his, uh, his children. Yeah. And you, you get a little bit of taste of his, his humor. If you, if you look at interviews he's done and then there was an event that the uh, Stockdale center held many years ago, actually before it was called the Stockdale center uh, called an evening with Admiral Stockdale. And uh, they show a documentary there and there is uh, it's about 20 minutes long, I'd say. And there is a, a, a part with uh, Jenkins and you can, you can kind of see the humor in the man that's, sparkle in his eyes and uh admiral stockdale kind of lights up when he talks about him i think he kept him his spirits up when he needed it too with that mm. uh infectious sense of humor um how about jeremiah denton i know you worked uh, the, uh i remember worked meeting, on a document i remember meeting jeremiah denton and um yes that's right i, I helped with uh, the film jeremiah which is uh, Alabama public television and PBS. And um, anyone can see it online. If you just search for Jeremiah PBS, you'll find the link for it. It won four Emmy awards, including best historical documentary. So I was very, very proud to be part of that. Uh, Mark Fastoso was a producer and uh, did a great job with it. And um, I remember going to meet Admiral Denton and I probably met him maybe a year before he passed away, maybe two years, but I met him at the front door at his, at his home in Williamsburg and, I said, uh, Senator Denton, nice to meet you. Cause he had of course been a United States Senator from the state of Alabama. And mm -hmm. he said, Alvin, I was a Senator. I will always be an Admiral. And I think that summed up Jeremiah Denton. And that was actually <laughs> the, uh, the, I wrote his obituary in USA today. And that was the, uh, the title of the obituary was always an Admiral. He was never more proud of anything than his service in the United States Navy. Uh, his, um, famous, uh, episode where he blinked out torture in Morse code during a televised interview was, you know, one of, is considered one of the most extraordinary television events of the 20th century. Uh, but what yep. he always is actually most proud about was not the fact that he was, that he had the presence of mind to blink and, and mental acuity to uh, blink out torture in Morse code while he was answering questions. He was most proud of his answers to the questions because he did not say what the North Vietnamese captors had asked him to say. Rather, he said what he wanted to say and he supported his government. Uh, so, uh, that was, that was Jeremiah Denton. He was a stubborn, um, much more gung ho than Jim Stockdale. And, you know, there were large, large swaths of time where Jeremiah Denton was, uh, served as commanding officer of the POWs. That, that yeah. mantle sometimes switched between him and Stockdale. I was gonna say that Bob Shoemaker is the other, um, you know, person I want to uh, make sure I mention. He was, um, he's also, uh, one of the POWs with whom, um, I've become very close and our daughter Kensington actually has his middle name. And so he, um, just actually just last week, Sean, a little package arrived and it was one of his POW bracelets. Uh, it was for Kensington. Wow. And it had that a very, is, very nice awesome. note that in, in very uh, five-year-old terms described, you know, what the bracelet meant. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud that she'll always have that connection to uh, Rear Admiral Bob Shoemaker. 
or, or Robert Harper Shoemaker, since I should say Harper. And, and he kind of jokingly calls her Harper. I think he wishes we named her <laughs> Harper, but, um, you know, I think he's settled for Kensington Harper. Yeah, that, that's good. That's good. Um, now, Bob Shoemaker, I think if, if my, if my impressions are correct, he was, as you mentioned, kind of a cerebral guy and prided himself on his mathematical abilities, prided himself on abilities in regards to that ciphering um, and uh, the clandestine communications he carried out via that route. Now, am I correct in saying that that was carried out via letters uh, to Lorraine as Stockdale did with Sybil? Is that correct? Uh, Bob Schumacher would kill me if I answer that question, Sean. Um, I think think there were multiple ways that he functioned as a, um, as a cipher expert. I think that's probably just leave it at that. Okay. Safe, the safest way to say that, but but he is is still, I mean, he's, he has a PhD in aeronautical engineering and he is, uh, you know, he still, still has that, um, has, still has those smarts and, you know, still pilots his own aircraft that he built himself, by the way. So he's, you know, he's yeah. a very, very talented man. And he was very elusive in prison. The North Vietnamese, I don't think they ever caught him. I think they always knew that he was up to something, but just never were able to catch him. And, you know, yeah. and Bob, Bob's very soft-spoken and um, I, I, it doesn't necessarily seem like he'd be dangerous, but I think that in terms of communication, he was very dangerous. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. All right. Um, I guess the last thing I'd ask you to do for us, uh, nice sketches of uh, several of these men and these women. If you could, and I know this is putting you on the spot a little bit, but if you could derive a a little bit of, uh, as it were, lessons learned for not only uh, people in the service, but their families in terms of character traits that you think these people either had or developed, over the course of the Vietnam War and afterwards that has allowed them, you know, when you think about it, at the end of their lives here to be able to look back on those lives and say, you know what, we, we did extraordinary things. We're happy. We're fulfilled. We have uh, children and grandchildren that are also happy and fulfilled. It seems like we've done our job quite well. Uh, what yeah, do I you think, think what- they would recommend to us so we, as we get older, can look back and say similar things. Well, I think they first say that they don't they don't know any, anything that anyone else does not know. And I remember Bob Shoemaker talking about people that come up to him and say, oh, I could never do what you did. And he said, yes, you could. And I think that they had a uh, had an ability just to uh, put their heads down and get through the day. Um, you know, it was. Uh, I think they had what what you refer to as a Stockdale paradox, and uh, they had this mentality that um, uh, they couldn't let themselves believe they're going home tomorrow. And they had to understand that it was going to be rough and it was going to be brutal, but they can they can never lose hope that in the end, not knowing when the end was going to come, by the way, but in the end yeah. they'd win. And I think that was a real important um, element of their uh, their mentality. So I think yeah, they would certainly tell people, you know, you have to come to grips with the situation you're in and you know, there's no way to sugarcoat that sometimes it's just rough, but you can't give up hope that everything's going to be okay in the end. I think that's probably the most important uh, lesson that, uh, that I could pull from it. 
Good. And I think that's applicable on, uh, as it were, both sides of the equation, the uh, spouse side and the service member side. Uh, sage advice. And I think you're also, uh, you're, you're also correct. And, and I think provide us with a, a note of hope and optimism about uh, humanity in saying that uh, a lot of these guys would say, hey, we're not extraordinary people. We're just everyday people. And we got stuck in maybe extraordinary circumstances. But what does that uh, uh, demonstrate to us about human nature? Something pretty darn positive. And I think that's a useful thing for us to keep in mind uh, as we deal with day-to-day stresses and national stresses, as it were. Well, thank you, Alvin. It's been an absolute pleasure to do this uh, series of interviews. I have likewise enjoyed it. Sean, nice to be with you. You too, Alvin. Thanks a million. And this is Radio Stockdale. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.